This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and our guest, Professor Deborah H. Bell, Associate Dean for Clinical Programs and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're going to talk about divorce, property division, alimony, child support. If you have a question about your rights or what the law is on family law, give us a call at one 877 MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and what an honor it is to have Debbie Bell on the show today. Um, She is, and this is not hyperbole, the leading expert on family law in the state of Mississippi. But I want to to call out one of the other shows. I want to call out Dr. DeShazo this week in respect to Debbie, too, because he said something that lawyers only do things for money. And the fact is, Debbie is an, has won many awards for her service, her pro bono service, her, you know, and, uh, and to the state and to its people. And she leads our bono, uh, pro bono initiative, our clinics, which all provide um, free legal services for people who can't afford to pay for legal services. So I just want to say that lawyers give a lot of time. And, and Debbie Bell has been a great leader in that area. Well, we appreciate your volunteering to uh, be our co-host on this show. And uh, I want to introduce Professor Deborah Bell. She's a graduate of Mississippi College and the University of Mississippi School of Law. And as you said, her primary area of expertise is family law. Welcome to our show, Professor Bell. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is um, unfortunately a extremely necessary but, uh, you know, not necessarily a joyful talk- topic about uh, family law. Um, I guess it, it's good to have laws so that uh, things can be decided as equably, equitably and as fair and as fast as possible. Um, let's go ahead and just jump in and talk about Mississippi's divorce laws. Uh, I, I think we're kind of special. Is that right? We are. Um, So Mississippi is um, unique, uh, along with one other state in our current divorce laws. The um, until about the 1960s, all states had pretty much the same divorce law system. And that is you could get divorced only if you could prove really narrow fault based grounds. So you could get divorced if your spouse deserted you, if your spouse committed adultery, if your spouse was imprisoned. But without those fault-based grounds, you couldn't just get divorced. Then in the early 70s, really led by California, there was a move to adopt no-fault divorce, or what I call unilateral no-fault divorce, where parties could pretty much get divorced by alleging that the marriage was broken and couldn't be put back together 
and they could get a divorce. That that change sort of swept the country in about a decade. And as of now, there are only two states left, Mississippi and South Dakota, that do not have true unilateral divorce. So in Mississippi, uh, we have something called irreconcilable differences divorce, but what it really is is divorce by agreement. It means that if you and your spouse agree to get divorced, you can. But if your spouse does not agree to be divorced, then you're back in that old fault-based system, and you can only get divorced if you can prove one of those grounds. Do you have any speculation on why Mississippi is that way? Um, I I think it is. So this, of course, would go to the legislature to make this change. I think Mississippi is a a family-based society, and I think the I think the reason the legislature has not addressed this is the sense that it it somehow is anti-marriage. And so there's a resistance to doing something that makes it look like divorce is easier. And I will say what some states have done to address both of those concerns, to both make divorce more difficult, but to recognize the reality that some marriages are broken and can't be put back together, is to have a really long waiting period. So I know that over the last few years, it's been suggested to the legislature that we adopt a a long waiting period, two years. I I think once even five years was suggested that if you've been living apart and separate for a period of years without reconciliation, you should be able to get divorced. But so far that has not passed. And Debbie, does, does our system make it more costly to get divorced as well? Absolutely. So the um, w- one of the problems I see with the lack of unilateral divorce is that for low-income people particularly, it makes it harder to get divorced because you, you not only have to navigate the system of property division and alimony, but you have to understand how to prove grounds. And there's some, some tricky rules in there. You have to have a corroborating witness. There are defenses with odd names like condemnation and recrimination that you have to understand, whereas in most states, at least obtaining a no-fault divorce itself is not that difficult. So in in (coughs) Mississippi, is it uh, required or recommended that you do have an attorney to get a divorce? Absolutely. Um, The Although there are a lot of people who have difficulty affording attorney, I I would absolutely recommend that anyone who has the resources uh, hire an attorney to assist them with divorce. There's some really tricky issues completely unrelated to the divorce itself in the financial arrangements and in custody of children. Uh, So it's very important and makes a real difference to have an attorney. So, listeners, if you have any questions about uh, divorce or how (coughs) property might be divided in a divorce, give us a call this morning. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. And I'll go ahead and hit refresh on the email. Now, uh, Dr. Bell... There, you were talking about the legislature making laws. Wasn't there? There was some uh, divorce changes over the summer. There were. I'm glad you mentioned that. <clears throat> so, these proposals that have been made to the legislature over the last few years 
um, some of the arguments that have been made in favor of more flexible divorce laws have been that our current laws have a negative impact on victims of domestic violence, and the legislature did hear that, and and I applaud them for this step that they took. Uh, One of the grounds, one of the fault-based grounds is habitual, cruel, and inhuman treatment, which can cover physical abuse. But, but not all instances of physical abuse. So this year, the legislature amended that ground. It now says that a person can get divorced if they prove habitual cruelty, including domestic spousal abuse. So the question people have had is, how does that really change things? And I see um, that it changes in a couple of ways. First of all, under habitual cruelty without this amendment, there have been some cases where victims of domestic violence were not able to get a divorce based on one incidence of physical violence. The court would say it wasn't sufficient or it was an isolated incident. Now the way the statute is written, anyone who has suffered an incidence of physical violence that would be enough to get a protective order can now get a divorce. The second change is that under our fault-based system, you have to have corroborating evidence of your divorce ground And a lot of time, that's really hard to get with domestic violence, which often happens in secret. The the amendment takes away the requirement for corroborating evidence, which I think is a a really good improvement. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt and say that Debbie actually uh, had a part in this, too, because there was some reluctance uh, to adopt this new provision. And it was uh, Debbie writing to one of the representatives and talking to one of the representatives that swayed that vote. And so this is a good change. Well, thank, thank you for saying that. I, th- I think there were a lot of people who weighed in on this, um, feeling that this was a really important change uh, for people who were victims of violence. But the, the last difference I see is that the now, if you have been able to get a protective order for domestic violence, that actually should also prove the, the ground for divorce. So I think this is a positive change and indicates that the legislature is concerned about the impact of our divorce laws on, on Mississippi citizens. Well, since we'll, we'll uh, a little bit more about divorce, uh, is there, do we have legal separations in Mississippi? We do not, and that's a common misconception that people have. We have something called separate maintenance. So let's say... Um, a couple is separated and one of the two wants to get divorced but the other doesn't and they don't have grounds so so practically they can't get divorced in Mississippi the spouse who does not want the marriage to end may be able to get separate maintenance that is not the same thing as a legal separation um, in Mississippi if you have not obtained a divorce you are still legally married if you have a relationship with somebody else even though you've been separated for years that's considered adultery. So we, we do not, as some states do, have something called legal separation. And I guess this is a little bit off the topic, but do we also not have uh, common law marriages? Is that right? We do not. We had common law marriage until 1953, and then uh, the legislature abolished common law marriage, uh, except for those common law marriages that actually took place prior to 1953. There aren't many of those left, but uh, every now and then one comes up. All right. Well, listeners, when we uh, we're going to take our break now. And if you have a question, we're going to move on to uh, uh, marital division of property, child support, uh, continuing with our family law questions. So give us a call with your questions at one eight seven seven MPB ring. 
That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you miss any part of this program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Deborah Bell from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And this morning, we're talking about family law. If you have a question about family law, if, if you have a question about divorce or alimony, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four, Professor Gershon, you've you've found us an excellent uh, speaker, an excellent guest for our show today. Well, I I, I knew she would be, and uh, she always is, and she's a great colleague to work with, and but also a really fantastic resource for the people of our state. Well, and we have a couple of calls waiting. First, we're going to go to Doris from Kosciuszko. Welcome to In Legal Terms, Doris. What's your question? That is an excellent uh, Doris, you're going to need to turn off your radio and listen to us through your phone because there's a bit of a lag. Doris, are you there with your question? Uh, Doris, we're going to put you on hold and we'll get to you uh, in, in a few minutes. So uh, callers, be sure when you listen to us to... Um, Put your phone on hold, uh, turn off your radio, and listen to the show through your phone while you're waiting. So, uh, Professor Bell, um, we'll move on through some of the family law topics. Uh, gosh, this must be hard. Uh, how do you divide property when a couple divorces? Well, that that's an interesting question that can take up volumes of a treatise, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. There, there are multi-volume treatises that discuss this issue. So until 1994 in Mississippi, this was a pretty easy answer. Uh, and the answer then would have been whoever held title to a piece of property got that piece of property. It was called, very aptly, the title system. And that was a, a long-standing um, practice that whoever held title just got the property. In the 50s, until the 50s and 60s, that pretty much meant uh, that in most families, the men got the property. Because with the exception of the marital home, often all of the property was titled in a man's name. So all of the the non-community property states, there are eight community property states, so the rest of the states during the period of the 60s and 70s began to change from the title system to what's called equitable distribution. And equitable distribution is a a system that looks to see what the couple acquired by their joint efforts, and whatever was acquired by their efforts is called marital property, and that marital property can be divided no matter who holds title. 
So let me give you an example. Let's say a couple got married, and at the time they got married, the wife owned um, $10,000 in investment accounts, and the husband owned a small farm. And then they, they were married for 20 years. They worked hard. They built assets apart from those. They purchased a home. They had retirement accounts. The the farm would be the husband's separate property. That wouldn't be divided. The the $10,000 would be the wife's separate property. That wouldn't be divided. But the assets that they built, either one of them through their efforts, would be considered marital. So the court would look at those marital assets and then divide them up based on um, a series of factors. But basically the most important factors are who contributed to the accumulation of the property, who needed the property going forward, who was at fault in the divorce, and if, in fact, if one of them had um, dissipated or misused assets, that would be a factor as well. It doesn't have to be equal division, as you said. It just has to be equitable division. But as you can imagine, uh, that simple formula, anything built by the efforts of the parties, can then be turned into just a multiplicity of arguments by attorneys. So, for example, you have questions about what happens if the husband's farm um, was owned prior to marriage, but then the couple worked on it together during their marriage and it increased in value from 100000 to $300,000, what do you do with the increase in, in the value? So there are all sorts of tricky questions, but that's the basic system. Wow, what a, what a lot of things you'll have to, to think through and divide up. So uh, we think we've got our phone situation cleared up. Uh, Doris from Kosciuszko, welcome to In Legal Terms. What's your question? Good morning. Uh, Good morning. My question is, if I'm getting a divorce soon to be on the 26th of this month, and the man is military, and he will be 60, so he'll start his military money next month, uh, am I entitled to some of that money? Okay, so... Um, I did for alimony from my attorney. He said I was entitled to alimony. So, so Doris, um, this is Debbie speaking. Uh, so, first of all, I, I wanted to, to say this to any callers who might call in. I can't give legal advice on this show in terms of a specific situation. So what I'm going to try to do when people call and have, have questions specific to their own cases is to cast that in, in terms of general law. Um, so I would like to say this, and I was about to say it um, with regard to property, two of the most difficult and trickiest issues to determine in property division are what to do with a small family-owned business and probably even more difficult, how to divide retirement accounts. And within how to divide retirement accounts, probably one of the trickiest questions is how to divide military accounts. So you have just like gone directly to... Um, a volume of work on something that's really difficult to determine. And uh, to be honest, um, it depends on the type of pension. It depends on the regulations, the military regulations that apply to that pension. It depends on what your divorce decree says about that pension. Um, So I I hate to not be able to give you something more specific, um, but it really depends very much on your specific fact circumstances. Um, That said, I can tell you in general that while some military benefits are not divisible, like disability benefits, 
others are divisible. Sometimes it depends on the length of time people have been married. Uh, sometimes it depends on their agreement. But that, that's something I encourage you to go back and talk to your attorney about because it's going to be really specific to your fact situation. Yes, ma'am. I'm a veteran myself, a disabled U.S. Navy veteran, and I, I understand about the disability part because right. I am, like I said, a disabled American veteran. And I thank you so much for your time. Well, I thank you for calling in, and I, I wish you the best of luck. Well, we now have an, another call. Thank you for that call, Doris. We appreciate it. Uh, now we have another call from Leaksville. Richard has a question. Thanks for calling in legal terms. Go ahead. Hi. How are you this morning? Hi, Richard. Uh, my question is, uh, basically, uh, I have been divorced now for four years, no-fault divorce, and uh, my wife stopped, my ex-wife stopped letting me see my child. However, I'm sorry, I drive a big truck, so I had to pull over. <laughs> uh, my my ex-wife stopped letting me see my child uh, out of bitterness. Uh, and my question is, I pay my child support. Matter of fact, I pay it through DHS. Now, I am a little bit behind, about $1,300 behind, but that's due to the fact that I was unemployed for a short period of time. Now, uh, there's nothing in the file stating that I can't see my child. There's no restraining order. There's nothing, nothing, you know, criminal or anything like that in the file. I'm just, for the last four years, uh, haven't been able to see her because of who my wife is. My question to you is, since I am paying my child support, don't I have a right to see my child if there is no restraining order or any type of uh, order stating that I can't from the judge? Okay, Richard. Uh, so, again, I, I, I wanted to, to say I, I can't give direct advice because there are always may, may be additional facts. But that said, the law is pretty clear on the general question that you posed, and that is if you have a right under your divorce decree to visitation with your child and you are not being allowed that visitation, a, a person absolutely has the right to, to demand in court that they be allowed that visitation. Now, here's the caveat that I want to offer. Um, once, once someone is divorced, the courts really have authority over um, that couple's financial affairs and to some extent the custody of their children. So when a, when a parent has custody and they are refusing to let the, the other parents see the child, they are really in contempt of court. And so the, the proper measure for somebody who is in your situation is to file a petition in the court, um, usually where, where the divorce decree was, unless you've all moved, um, file a petition for contempt and ask the court to require that your ex-wife allow you to see that child. Um, and then unless there is some reason that would have to be really drastic, and, and, and believe me, bitterness over a divorce is not the, the drastic reason that would allow, um, allow her to deny divorce, uh, uh, deny visitation. That's the remedy. So do you, does a person need a lawyer to file a petition for contempt, or is that something they can do on their own? Um, as with most of these, it's better if you have a lawyer, 
but it certainly is something everybody has a right to to file their own petition in court it's a as family law pleadings go it is a relatively simple petition uh, it's it's a petition that's that would state that um, what the divorce decree said attach the divorce decree and provide the facts stating that visitation hasn't been provided so um, it's something that can be done uh, without an attorney, but it's always better if you have an attorney involved. Is there a form on a website for that, or is that something that just an, an attorney knows how to draw it up? An attorney knows how to draw it up, and I apologize for not knowing this. There are um, some forms that are available for people who meet certain income guidelines. I, I do not know whether that is is one of the forms that's available um, but maybe we can get that information. Well, and, and uh, Professor Gershon, we also have a, a, a new topic is uh, maybe uh, pro bono law uh, as as one of our coming up topics. Uh, when we come back from our break, we're going to continue talking about family law. We'll talk about alimony. We'll talk about custody and child support laws. Bill from Belzona, we'll get to your call. And if you have a question, we'd like to have uh, your questions on what laws you want to know about concerning family law. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 1- You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio. We appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. On the next Fix It 101, we're looking at your appliances. Many of us take them for granted until they stop working. With a little knowledge and common sense, your home appliances could live well beyond their years. From AC Remedies, we welcome our resident appliance guy, Timmy McClendon, to the Handyman Hangout. So tune in Wednesday at 9 for the next Fix It 101. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast using any podcast app. Just search Fix It 101. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. To call the show, dial 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We're glad that you're listening with us this this morning. We've got Professor Richard Gerson, our expert, and we're joined today by Professor Deborah Bell, who specializes in family law. And that is our topic today. We're taking questions about the laws concerning divorce and custody of children. You can give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 672 
888-727-7464. And now we do have a call. We're going to go to Belzona. Bill has been holding. Thanks for holding, Bill. What is your question? Uh, what do you think about premarital agreement? Uh, you get married late in life and you're substantial. Uh, shouldn't the other party understand? And how would you approach the other party? Would you approach uh, the other party uh, with your attorney or by yourself or what? So that's a great question, Bill. And my, my first comment would be approach the other party before the rehearsal dinner night. So, um, so one of the things that that has happened in recent years is that as we have switched from the title system to equitable distribution, a number of people getting married, particularly later in life or if it's a second marriage, are looking to premarital agreements to sort out how will they how they will divide their property at divorce. And courts, of course, are taking a close look at these agreements to decide whether they should be enforceable. Mississippi has had a recent change, I guess it was about two or three years ago, in the way our courts approach these agreements. So previously, uh, before this case called Sanderson v. Sanderson, if a couple executed a premarital agreement that said that each person would keep their own separate property plus whatever they earned during the marriage, the only question was whether... um, whether it was fair in the way they went about signing it. It's called procedural fairness. In other words, did the person have advance notice? Were they able to understand the agreement? Did they have time to get an attorney if they wanted to? And the court really didn't look at the the fairness of the content of the agreement. Then three years ago in the Sanderson case, our court said that when they're looking at the fairness of an agreement, they will look not only at whether it was executed in a fair way, signed in a fair way, but also whether it's just a a fair agreement. So that's the law right now. I would advise anyone who is getting married when they have substantial property to consider whether they should have a premarital agreement. And it is something that should be discussed well in advance of of the marriage. That's a critical issue. Um, as far as approaching, if only if one person has substantial resources and the other doesn't, and the person with resources has an attorney, um, my guess is most attorneys will be very reluctant to meet with both together because they, they won't want the other, the fiance, to feel like they're representing them as well. When you're drafting a premarital agreement, the attorney can only represent one side. So most of the attorneys I know I think would be reluctant to meet it at least initially with the other party. Um, so, and, and the other thing you want is if you want to get a premarital agreement, it should be clear to the, the fiancé that they have a right to have their own attorney, that they should get their own attorney to review the agreement. And most people put in the agreement something that says that that the fiancé has been advised, at least, that they have a right to attorney. And if they don't have one, they've declined to to get one. Okay. Thank you. Certainly. Thank you, Bill. We appreciate your calling in with your questions. Next, we're going to go to Jackson. JB has a question. Welcome to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Good day. How are you doing today? We're glad that you called. I'm having a problem up at Madison Chantry Court. The, um, my wife has refused to bring my uh, two boys for visitation for now uh, almost four years. Uh, we filed on her about two years. 
We went to court about this in front of Judge Clark, and he has not rendered us a decision now in almost two years. How do we force the judge to make a decision? I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. They just so, won't hold her in contempt. Men, so fathers, I, I, of, fathers of children just don't have any rights. So, JB, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're struggling with this. I, I know how difficult it must be. To, to be trying to see your children. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, I, I really can't address any particular case because the, I, I don't know the specifics of a case that's gone on for four years. Uh, I, I'm so sorry. How is it that the judge has the right not to make a decision? Uh, you know, again... Is he just lazy, or what's the story? I, I, I certainly just can't speculate on a particular case. I, I will tell you that I would strongly encourage you to go speak to your attorney um, and, and try to understand from your attorney what your options might be at this point. And, and I will say I, I'm so sorry that you're struggling with that. And, and for everybody who, who is trying to deal with child issues post-divorce. Go ahead, Professor Gershon. I was going to say it's a sh- what what it's always a shame in the, in these cases, and I'm sorry um, that you're dealing with that as well. Parents out there, if you're going through a divorce, don't use your kids as a way to get back at your spouse. It hurts the children. Uh, they need to have a relationship with both parents, and uh, you know this is not law talk right here. This is simply the right thing to do. Ch- children should not be used as bargaining chips or a way to gain power over the other parent. And the fact is, uh, you know, when that happens, the, the parent who is excluded a lot of times ends up having a better relationship with the adult children uh, once the children can make decisions for themselves. So it's really not good for anyone, and I encourage people just don't use your kids as a way to get back at your spouse. Well, let's move on to finding out what exactly the law is on some of these topics. Are, let's go talk about alimony. Uh, how does a court decide who gets alimony? So alimony now, to me, is the most uncertain piece of a divorce action. Everything else being so crystal clear. Uh, yes, everything else <laughs> being so close. Really good point. Right? Yeah, so in, in some murky waters, this is the murkiest spot. Um, so alimony at one time was the primary way that a court sorted out financial disparity between a couple when they divorced. Then after we adopted equitable distribution in 1994, alimony really became a backup tool for sorting out rights between the couple. So what our case law says is that after a court has divided the marital property, then if one of the parties is left with a financial deficit, the court may award alimony, but doesn't have to. So there are two questions. First of all, is there a financial deficit between the spouses after the couple has divided marital property? And often there is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the court's going to award alimony. The second question is, given that deficit, should the court award alimony? And to determine that, the court looks at, again, how great the need is. Really important factor is how long the marriage lasted, um, who was at fault in the breakup of the marriage, What's the age of the parties? If you've got somebody who's leaving a 15-year marriage at 42, they're a lot less likely to get, uh, to get alimony than somebody who's leaving a 15-year marriage at 67. So, you know, what's, what's the likelihood <clears throat> that the lower-income person may be able to um, reenter the workforce and increase their resources? Then to, to top it off, there, 
to add to the murkiness, there are a couple of different types of alimony. You can get um, what's called permanent alimony, which has no ending date, <clears throat> or there's something called rehabilitative alimony that's short-term alimony, um, anywhere from two years to six or seven years, and courts often award that to a younger spouse in a shorter marriage um, where there's really the facts really don't warrant permanent alimony. On the TV shows, the ex-husband always wants the ex-wife to get remarried so he can stop <laughs> paying alimony. Uh, is, is that a, a, a truism? Uh, no, actually. Some alimonies terminate at remarriage. And I'm actually glad you brought this up because it, it links to a, another new development in Mississippi law. So permanent alimony, um, alimony that says husband shall pay the wife $1,000 a month, no ending date. If she remarries, that will terminate. That ends. If there's um, short-term alimony, <clears throat> the court just says husband will pay the wife $1,000 a month for five years. That does not necessarily end at remarriage. There's actually another form of alimony that I didn't mention called lump sum alimony. Sometimes the court will say husband will pay the wife lump sum alimony of $20,000 right now upon divorce. That does not terminate at remarriage. So the, the termination only applies to that traditional permanent alimony form. But um, a, a, a linked uh, rule deals with whether alimony terminates at cohabitation. And until this year, permanent alimony did terminate if a party, uh, if the recipient of the alimony, the ex-wife, lived with someone. Just the, it pretty much just automatically terminated if you lived with someone. This year, um, our, our Court of Appeals had three separate cases that addressed this issue. And in each case, the court held that if the recipient of alimony lives with someone, in order to determine whether the alimony terminates, you have to look to see whether the cohabitation changed their need for alimony. And that is a huge change in uh, the law of alimony and cohabitation and makes it less likely that alimony is going to end when somebody cohabits. All right. This morning we're speaking with a Professor uh, Deborah Bell. She's taking your questions about the law on family law. So, Joe from Pascagoula, we're glad uh, that you've called in to In Legal Terms. What is your question about the law for Professor Bell? Hi, uh, yes, ma'am. How are y'all doing? Hi, Joe. Uh, yeah, my question is, uh, my niece was recently married five years ago, had a, uh, a child, their first child, one year ago. Uh, in the process of their marriage, the husband has uh, started a, uh, a business of his own. He also has a uh, fairly, uh, fairly good job. Uh, recently, he has stepped out of the marriage, uh, and... I was trying to tell my niece that she needed to contact an attorney to find out all the loopholes, but I was listening to your radio show. Okay, he is trying to convince her to work on the marriage and, and stuff like that. I'm under the impression he may be trying to get her to hold off on, on speaking to an attorney until he can liquidate uh, the assets of the business and stuff. And what I'm wondering, is there a statue of limitations or some kind of form where if she finds out that somebody committed adultery, if she does not react in a certain amount of time and he's able to liquidate all his assets, 
uh, in the state of Mississippi, is, is he able to do that in a period of time? Or is this something that she has to react to fairly quickly? So, so Joe, you've asked a question that, that actually involves a couple of different issues, and I'm going to address the divorce grounds issue first because I, I, this is an important um, part of the, the uniqueness of Mississippi divorce law. So, um, and I'm going to reframe the question again in, in general terms. So the question is, if somebody's spouse commits adultery, how does, if a, if a husband commits adultery, how does the wife's conduct after she learns about that affect her ability to get a divorce? Um, so adultery is certainly a ground for divorce, but as I mentioned earlier, we have these old common law defenses that can take away your ability to get a divorce. And one of those is a common law defense called condemnation, which it's an odd word, which really means forgiveness. So under Mississippi law, if, uh, if the husband commits adultery and the wife knows about it, she forgives him, she takes it back, takes him back, they resume their marriage, and it's clear that, that she has forgiven him and taken him back, that's called condemnation. And it is a, he can use that as a defense to divorce, that if she waits several years to divorce him, if he has not committed adultery again, then she would not be able to get a divorce based on adultery because the court would be likely to find that she had condoned or forgiven that adultery. Um, that, that, would, that would be, of course, if he was trying to, if he was refusing to agree to a divorce. Now, the other question I hear you asking is, um, let's say someone is contemplating divorce and they're trying to, um, to move assets around. So if an asset, uh, one of the assets that is likely to be marital is a business that was built during the marriage with funds that were earned during the marriage. So what would happen if a spouse sold a marital asset. Well, just because you sell an asset, it doesn't mean that the that marital property label doesn't apply to the proceeds. So under Mississippi law and most states with equitable distribution, the money that he got for the business would still be marital. The problem, and I, I think this may be what you're asking, is that money's a lot easier to um, move around and do away with than a hard asset like a business or a piece of land. So when a, a couple gets to court and the court believes that one spouse has done this, it's called dissipation of assets, and the court will look back and, and, and try to trace and locate those assets and can take it into account. But it, but it is a matter for concern if someone sells a business, um, if, those, if the financial um, return is not still available. All right, Joe, I hope that helped you with your question. We're going to take our final break of the hour. When we continue, we'll take the last couple of phone calls on family law. So, uh, Bill from Ridgeland, please hold on. Uh, you can send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash inlegalterms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as, as, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Deborah Bell from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We have a few more minutes to take our, your family law questions and we have uh, uh, a call that has been holding on nice, patiently uh, from Ridgeland. We have Bill. Bill, what's your question or comment about the law and our show today? Okay. Um, Professor Bell, hey, this is Bill Featherston. I was driving back from court and heard Hi. the caller mention that he had a problem with getting a judge to render a decision in a timely matter. I think he said four years. And there is a specific procedure that addresses that in the Mississippi Rules of Appellate Procedure, Rule 15, which is mandamus to require trial court decision. And it states that when a judge doesn't rule on a case within 60 days, the parties shall submit a proposed order. And then if the judge does not rule on it within six months, then the administrative office of the courts will consider that a writ of mandamus and can require the trial judge to render a decision. Bill, thank you so much. I I appreciate you calling in and providing um, us with that, and it's so nice to have a practicing lawyer, in addition to the academics here, uh, to provide that kind of information. And I have actually had to use that, unfortunately, to require a judge to make a decision in a timely manner. Um, It's kind of like a last resort, but sometimes it's necessary. Right. Well, thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Good to talk to you. We appreciate. Now we have one last caller today from the Gulf Coast, Angela. Thanks for calling in, Angela, to In Legal Terms. What's your question or comment? I hope I can um, voice it well, uh, well enough to be understood. Um, uh, where is it, if at all possible, to go before you go to the attorney, maybe before marriage or both, so that when you do speak with the, the attorney, your counsel, you are best prepared to communicate best. And, I mean, what, by that, I mean, what part of the system do you try to access at the courthouse? Marital law, property, equitable distribution? What do y'all call it? So, uh, Angela, I I'm, I'm, want to be sure I'm understanding your question. Are you asking how you can best learn about family law even before, before you get married? Before you go to, yes, before you get married, and especially even if you are already married and facing this sort of a, a problem, um, to, so that you can be best prepared to communicate with the counsel that you so, seek. So um, there are some resources available for the public. I know that our, um, our state's legal services programs have website information on family law. Um, I think our Access to Justice Commission website may have some family law materials. Um, the the so one of the problems. Is- let, let me yeah, and let me add this. This is something um, I, I think is a, sort of unique to Mississippi. Is Mississippi statutes, which are are easier to access than cases, 
are pretty basic on divorce. Most of Mississippi's case law, most of Mississippi's law on family law is made by case law, which does make it more difficult to to research. But I would suggest first just doing a, a general Google search for websites that have consumer information on family law. All right. Thank you, Angela, for your question. And, you know, we will we have our shows up online and we will I will confer with Professor Bell uh, after the show and we'll see about what websites we could tag onto our show. So if that's a great uh, idea. Any listeners wanted to uh, click on that to get some more information? Well, Professor Bell, we have one minute left. (laughs) If you want to summarize everything else we didn't get to talk about. Um, I I would just say that uh, there there are a lot more areas of family law, custody, and child support that we didn't get to, and maybe we can address those in a future show. Professor Gerson, that sounds like a fantastic idea. A wonderful idea. Anytime Debbie Bell wants to be on the show, she's welcome. We're so glad that you have both been able to to be with us. So that will wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. We do want to make sure that you understand that if you hear our show and you, you want to hear the whole thing, if you've missed part of it, you can go to a previous show. You can visit our website. That's mpbonline.org slash In Legal Terms. You can... Uh, That's where you can also subscribe to our podcast so that if you want to have this automatically sent to whatever podcast media app that you use, uh, but it's always there online. You can also listen to it on our MPB media app that will show our have our radio and our television shows uh, that you can watch on your smart device, on your tablet, your computer or your smartphone. Our call screener today was Jared Hallman. He's been our intern. We've been so glad to have him for the past few weeks. Our board engineer has been Jay White. For Professor Richard Gershon, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking. Join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.